1: G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au.
0: T's and C's apply. New South Wales, authorisation number TP-01005. What a champion! Becomes a legend! McCovey Debra won Perkins goes in first.
1: What a legend. What a champion.
0: Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It is, as always, a great pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Today we're celebrating the life of a great cat, 245 games in the hoops. All Australian, he captained the club, he was in the team of the century and his name is Michael Turner and he's with us in the
1: studio. Mick, hello. Yeah, thanks Pete and thanks for the introduction. How are you going? You're looking well? Well, not too bad for 63. We're hanging in there, so trying to stay as fit as we possibly can. All that surfing and everything's doing you good? Yeah, well, I live on the coast uh, in Lawn, so it's a good lifestyle down there. And, um, uh, yeah, I do still do a lot of surfing. I only had a surf, uh, you know, last Friday in, in fairly... Good and uh, big conditions. So, I like a bit like Jared Hilly, I like to sort of surf the bigger waves. It, it gets all the other people out of the road, and you can you've got a bit more room to move. So, no, it's it's good. But you know, as you get older, you just can't uh, take the risks you used to. So, you've got to be a bit careful. Was it always going to be the seaside for you, Mick? Because you were born by the sea. Yeah, I think so, Dad. Um you know, obviously played in the 51-52 premierships for Geelong and um, was very success, successful. And people often say, well, why did he go down to Warnable when he was at his peak at 25-26? Because I think he was vice-captain of Geelong and probably would have been captain of Geelong if he stayed there and certainly was off the Geelong coaching job because I can remember Bob Davis coming down to our house in Warnable um, in the era. After Bob um, and when Peter Piante took over. So the, the job was offered to dad, um, but he, he, he left Warnable. So, to explain it to people, in those days, the, you're on a basic um, wage of about £3 a game. And I think Reg Hickey, the coach, was on 10 and Norm Smith supposedly was on about 12 to 15 pounds. But the money was in the country then, Pete, and um, Dad went down to Wanderl and coached Wanderl when he was getting 40 pounds a game. Oh. So, you know, it's a big difference. Three pounds is an AFL player to 40, and Paul Couch's dad, Bill, who's a bit of a legend down there, was on 18 pounds a game, paying off a dairy farm. So why was he going to come to Geelong for three? And Ricky Barham's dad was a bit the same in Hamilton. He was on about 15 to 18 pounds a game. So there was money in the country in those days and not so money... Uh, not so much money in the, in the VFL in, in, in that time. So a lot of players, you know, left the game pretty early, whether it was my dad or Ulster Lord went and coached uh, you know, South Warnable or uh, Stuart Lord coached Camperdown. We, we had, They had great AFL players come down and play and coach, um, you know, when they were 26, uh, 27, 28, so, uh, and, and established businesses. So my dad was um, smart enough to go down and buy a really good business in Warnable which kept the family in good stead for, for many, many years. And uh, we lived in a street called Ferry Street behind the business and um, no, he, did, he did extremely well. So there were lots of reasons in those
0: days Mick to play football in the country and you've just talked about some of them. What about today? You you spend a lot of your time around the regions. Yep. Country footy clubs are struggling. Is it just because of this behemoth that is the AFL
1: that is all consuming or are there other reasons for it? Well it probably depends where you go Pete. I mean like, people say that to me all the time you know the small country towns uh, are losing you know their teams and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's more demographic, demographic than AFL. So um, th- there was a really strong league down in our way once called the HB Nurat um, Football League. Now, that doesn't exist anymore because they're little, little small country towns basically made up of dairy farmers and, you know, and their sons playing for, for playing for the team. But look, a lot of the young kids now, and I've just driven into Melbourne, but... Yeah, you know, the young kids now, a lot of them don't want to stay on the farms. They don't want to stay in the small country towns like Cobden. They want to come to the city or they want to come to Geelong and they're off to university. And when we were growing up, um, you're pretty much stuck in your... Well, I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but I was growing up in Warrnambool in a country town. You went to the school. You might have been lucky enough to go to university. But, you know, we didn't have iPhones and iPads and, and, and the ability to travel now, you know. So a, a lot of kids now will go and do their apprenticeships. They'll do their university studies like my two sons did and then they'll go overseas for... Two or three years and continue travelling. So, so the world's changed. I don't think it's the AFL's problem. It's just a demographic thing that small country towns um, are dying in some areas with football. But in other areas, particularly in Geelong, Geelong the foot, football growth in Geelong is massive at the moment. Pete. There would have been a lot of people, Mick, watching the grand final around the world a couple of weeks ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have an off-season as such? Is there such a thing as an off-season in football
1: these days when you're involved in the industry? No, look, it pretty much goes 24-7. People say that to me. So, um, you know, I'm employed by the AFL as what's called a talent manager and I manage an area from Lara to Colac. It used to be Lara to Warrnambool. So this might surprise people, but um, I have three full-time staff. There's myself, my football operations manager, Dean Pearce, and Katie Gehrings, who manage the girls. But outside that, we employ 60 people to work for us part-time. So an AFL club... It's best described as a fully professional club, full-time staff, full-time players, you know, and, and it's a full-time program. When you get in the, um, say, the TAC Cup, uh, it's a part-time program because the kids are going to schools with basically part-time staff and it's a part-time program. But everything we do is 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 mirrored on what the AFL do to prepare those boys and girls if they're good enough for the AFL draft. So, no, there's there's no off-season. At, at, at the moment when the um, our season's over, I'm probably maybe 25 to 30 hours a week better off because there's no training for a while and no games. But when you work for the AFL, it's like any industry. We we, we have a budget to run the Falcons of approximately $700,000, um, if i just off the top of my head. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just whether it's... Uh, Brian Cook at Geelong managing a budget of $100 million, or me managing a budget of 700000 at the Falcons. They're only numbers. So he's employing full-time staff. I'm employing part-time staff. So you just roll into the next season. Um, you know, you, you have uh, meetings with the coaches. You have department heads meeting. You make sure your staff are all right to go again. You're doing budgets. You're ordering gear. You're getting ready because preseason all of a sudden starts in um, mid um, mid-November for us. So we'll have 100 under-18 boys training, 50 under-16 elite boys training and 50 girls. So that's 200 players and, you know, approximately 60 staff will be there managing them. So, you know, they're not small organisations anymore. So you know, like any club, I think the bigger you get, if you're calling or West Coast, you've got a lot of help because there's a lot of full-time staff there and I've got part-time staff, but you've still got to manage them. And I've got really good staff, which is um, great. So just like uh, an AFL club do, we break down our... Um, our club into seven departments so I'm the talent manager which make, basically makes me the boss I have uh, everything's got to be ticked off with me because the AFL wants certain things to happen I have a footy operations department coaching department and, and you know we have a head coach three line coaches four development coaches we have a high performance department just like an AFL club do medical department um, the women's and girls department recruiting department and an under 16s department as well so you know it's just yeah, it completely mirrors the AFL so like any industry, whether it be Croc Media, the AFL or the Geelong Falcons, um, you've got to have your organisational structure and, and really good staff in place and, um, and hopefully you'll get some success. So the Falcons is the accepted path, if you like. It's the, it's
0: the underage path to go to the big game. But there have been so many stories in footy over the last few years. Michael Barlow was a guest on this yep. program. Stuart and Kelly at Geelong yep. who 've come through different paths, yep. it must be encouraging to see that it 's not limited to your area, but the fairy tale stories actually can come true for players who thought their
1: turn maybe would never come yeah, I think look um, when the draft's on at the uh, in, in the next month or so you know, it gets a massive amount of publicity now, and you know ninety, 90 to ninety five percent players you know taken to the AFL are taken through the draft because AFL clubs do an enormous amount of homework on the players that are out there Australia-wide, whether they're under 18 or over 18. So um, so that's a given. But you know, when, when the draft's done, 90 to 95% players will come out of the underage competition, whether that be in Victoria in the TAC Cup or through the national championships for Western Australia, South Australia, and the rest of Australia. But we we, we always say to the players that come into our program, uh, and we invite 100 each year, uh, we always say to them, look, you're into the program to reach your full potential. So if you're Luke Hodge you came from us, or Paddy Dangerfield or Gary Ablett, and you get drafted, that's fine. Um, as long as you get to your AFL club and work hard and reach your full potential, you have done it. But a lot of our players will also go and play in the VFL, whether it be at Geelong or Werribee or maybe another club in Melbourne if they go to university. And the rest of the players, um, so in that in that group of a hundred, you might get over two years, ten players drafted if you're doing well. So that's ten percent, maybe twenty percent will go into the VFL, but the rest of them, the other seventy percent, will go back to, to local football. So. Geelong had um, the grand final in the Geelong Footy League a couple of, you know, obviously a few weeks ago and St. Joseph's beat St. Mary's, two big clubs in Geelong and I counted up how much, uh, how many players had come through um, the, the AFL Academy system and um, out of the out of the two teams, I think I counted there was about 28 players that had uh, actually come through the system. So, so um, I think what's lost on people sometimes is they think they always just look at the elite and the elite players that are drafted to the AFL But it's a big circle, Pete, and, um, you know, what ends up happening is that, uh, yeah, the players go to the AFL and then they might end up in a media career. They may go coaching. It's hard to say. Uh, A lot of them um, will go to maybe come down to the VFL and be a coach there or or come back and coach local footy. So it's a a good system because it it brings young kids out of the system, educates them through those different um, mediums, and then they go back into local football or VFL football, you know, and and help create a, a better system down there. So... So, it's, yeah, it has been pretty successful, really. There are so many different ways
0: you can get to the big time, and we want to explore the way you got to the big time when we come back on the other side of the break. The great cat Michael Turner is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Stay with us. More from Mick after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. The Geelong champion and Team of the Century member, Michael Turner is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Mick, tell us about your journey. Uh, we talked about Warnable and the influence that that town had on your
1: upbringing. When did you think you might have what it takes to play in the big time? Yeah, it's a funny one, that because um, there's um, what, what I want to call with players is chronological chronological age, which is the age you actually are and in biological age, because everyone ma- uh, matures at a different rate. And, uh, and I was an interesting one. I um, went to school in Warrnambool at St. Anne's and uh, St. Joseph's, and I was a really good schoolboy athlete when I was you know, pre-puberty. Um, and uh, then I went off to a boarding school in Hamelin called Montevay College, which is a big boarding school. This is in 68, 69, 70. So you can imagine what that was like. It was very strict and um, very strictly run. Um, and what happened when I was there, um, I played uh, under 15 footballs there with people like Paul Cranich who went to uh, Collingwood. Yep. Yeah. And um, and then after that, because I, all of the other boys went through puberty and matured, I was a very late maturer. And um, I didn't really actually you know, start that till I was about 16 or 17. So my last year at Montevideo College in year 11, I couldn't get a game of football. I was that small. I was only about five foot one. So I said to my dad, look, you know, I'm I'm over boarding school. I want to come back home for a couple of years. So I went back to St. Joseph's in Warrnambool and um, started that year with uh, CBC, Christian Brothers College team, uh, in the under-17s, played the first game on the wing, played the second game. One of our players came back and I was on the bench. And I can still remember clearly sitting on the bench and thinking, well, it's not going to happen for me. My dad was an AFL player. I barracked for Geelong, but I won't play. Um, So I really had a growth spurt that year. And by the end of that season, I'd won the club best and fairest, which was a bit of a shock to everyone. Um, so the next year, I went to Warnable under-18s. That was in the Handham Football League, which is a strong league, and played for my father's old team, Warnable, and won the club best and fairest and won the league best and fairest, which is called the Judd Cup. And, that, and I thought, oh, I might be a chance here, you know. So uh, still pretty skinny, 60-something kilos. And Geelong asked me down to do a pre-season. So I went down, did a pre-season with Geelong, which, which was good, but I still wasn't quite physically ready. I'd finished my VCE and uh, came back and worked for Dad for a year in the um, in the shop that he had and uh, went and played with Warnable um, Seniors under a coach called Terry Alexander, who played for Collingwood. He was a really good fellow, a really good mentor to me. And won the club best and fairest. I was runner-up in the league best at first and should have won it, but that's another story. <laughs> and got the local radio station 3YB player of the year. So that was a pretty good year for, for me. And then I thought, well, here we go. So went back down to Geelong in 74. Uh, and they um, put me into teacher's college as a private student. Uh, they paid for my board at my grandmother's place in Sharp Street, which is just off a, off Caninia Park. And uh, I started there under Graham Farmer. So I was only about 65 kilos. My form pre-season was really good. We got the game the first game and I thought it was a chance to get picked and he didn't pick me, which I wasn't very happy about, but played uh, three games, I think, in the, in the VFL reserves and then he finally picked me for a game because Kenny Newland, I was picked on the bench, that's right, and Kenny Newland pulled out Crook and I got, got to play on the wing against St Kilda at Cadinia Park on Stuart Trott, who was a state winger at that time and, and I had a pretty good game and, um, and then it just started from there. So uh, in 74, um, $40 a game. Twenty in the in the VFL reserves, paid for teachers' college. That's as a part of my contract. I still got a copy of it at home, and uh, and ten dollars board at my grandmother's place, and, and a few other little expenses. So uh, yeah, started in '74, and off we went for for fifteen years. So it was you know it was it was very challenging. As we were talking about before, Peter, I didn't play football because um, I was a football nut or anything like that. Like I loved Geelong, and I barracked from, him and I was very aware of what my dad did. Um, there's no doubt about that. But look, I, I, if I had an option, I would have rather been in a rock and roll band playing the drums or something like that or been like a Wayne Lynch and gone surfing, mm. even though there wasn't much money in those days. He certainly didn't make any money out of it. But look, you do what you do. And uh, I was good at football because I was a good athlete um, and I was able to go and play for Geelong for 15 years. So the thing that strikes me now, though, is when I watch football, in those days, the grounds were pretty wet there was a centre-wicket area, remember that? All the grounds yeah. at that centre-wicket area. And it wasn't really made for lightly built, you know, running-type players. If I went to Waverley or the MCG when it was in good nick or we had good conditions, I certainly played a lot better. But, you know, anyone... These days it can actually it's got genuine pace and it's got, you know, mobility and can run and carry the ball and kick both feet and kick goals. Well, you'd be on a million bucks these days, wouldn't you? So. Well, you probably
0: would have been on a million bucks if you were playing today, but I want to extrapolate a little bit on what you were saying there. Given the fact that you're not a footy head, mm. that it was kind of a job to you in yep. some ways. Yep. If you were transplanted into today's environment where you had meetings all the time, mm. where you were at the club all the time, would that Chip away at Michael Turner today
1: because it would be so much like a job and not that much enjoyment. No, I think I've and I've spoken to my wife about this. I think you have a completely different attitude. So look, in those days, I'm not saying it was you know super hard. It, it wasn't easy, and you, you would have been the same in your career. I mean, I was living in Asian Grove when I was married in '83 with with two you know two young boys, and I was teaching and. Um, in Werribee, at a school in Werribee. Um, so I was a teacher for 15 years. So I was leaving Ocean Grove, driving to Werribee in my own car so that I could get back to training in time. So, you know, you would do that loop every day, up in the morning early, see, see the uh, kids off and uh, drive to Werribee and teach all day, visit or in the classroom and then drive down to training, train. And we used to start training later in those days to get everyone there. You'd start, you know, half past five. and you'd tra- You know, they trained you hard. It wasn't as intense as they do now, but it was hard. And uh, by the time you left the club and got home, it was probably half past eight and your tea would be on the table at nine. And then you get up and repeat it the next day. So that still wasn't easy. But, you know, if, if it was this, these days and you were fully professional, you'd just change your attitude completely. I nearly walked away from football on, on a number of occasions. Um, because, you know, it's a challenging sport. It doesn't matter whether it's now or in the 70s or in the 80s. It's, it's still challenging. But uh, these days being fully professional and the amount of money is in it, you would just dedicate yourself and be fully professional you're not at the club every day. I know the Geelong players aren't, you know, have their days off. Well, you've got other days, you know, and you've got more time to spend with your family. You know, it's particularly at night, you're not away. At night, you're not away during the day. So you can see your wife, you can see your kids um, and you can have a life outside of football. So I think now, I think it would be, even though it's more intense and more professional, I think you know, certainly for me, it would be more enjoyable. I would look at it I think sometimes when I was playing at Geelong, particularly in the seventies, I'd look at my pay pack and go, "You know, is it really worth doing this for this amount of money?" Like, it was you know, it was just ridiculous at the time. Um, my first big contract in the later seventies was about seven or eight thousand dollars, you know, and you, yeah, you know, you're off teaching, getting thirty, so it wasn't a big dough. Um, and you look at it sometimes, say, so, "Well, yeah, the amount of crap I got to cop and what I got to do is—is it, is it worth you know, sort of doing it?" So I, I nearly walked away from footy a couple of times, and threatened the club that I was going to go off surfing and all that sort of stuff if they didn't look after me a bit better. But, yeah, you know, I just think, yeah, the, the professionalism these days, you just say, well, look, I'm a professional footballer. I'm going to give it absolutely 100%. I can set myself up for life and um and go from there. So, uh, yeah I think um the players these days are pretty fortunate. I, I still know it's got its challenges, but, you know, and I say to a lot of them that I, I do know that have come through the Falcons, whether it be Jack Stephen at St Kilda or when I run into Paddy Dangerfield, you know, just remember and remember that... You're in a bit of a bubble, so you know it's not going to last all your life and you've got to realise, and you know, hopefully they do, that there's reality out there. Um, you know, a lot of players now are managed by managers and you know the footy club looks after them and all that sort of stuff, but the switched-on ones realise that they can make a, a big career out of it and set themselves up for life, but they are in a bit of a bubble, so that bubble's not going to last forever, that's for sure. Speaking of all of the other things that go with playing football, Mick,
0: expectation is one thing when you're the son of a famous father. Did you feel the weight of that expectation, given the fact that your dad, Leo, was such a decorated player, a champion of the club? Did people look at you expecting that you would be as good as him,
1: naturally? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah you, look, you used to get a little bit of that expectation, but I'll be honest, everyone's different, I suppose. It just depends on your personality, and um, I'm not saying I'm not, I've got an overconfident personality. I, I certainly worry about things, but... Um, yeah i i, I it never really worried me i was very proud of what my dad did he, he played in two premierships with Geelong and up into Geelong's you know recent era um you know winning the three premierships that, that they did they were, they were a really lauded team so um you know he, i knew he played in the 51 52 premiership and i was a father and son but look i never shied away from it i just went went and played and uh, he wore number 9 and i wore number 9 and um you know probably one of the biggest thrills i ever had in my football career was the fact that we both were selected and we're the only uh, father and son that uh, were selected in any AFL team team of the century in the same position on the, on the wing. So mm. that's a pretty unique thing. So yeah, very, very proud of proud of that fact that uh, we were able to achieve that. It's, it's it's pretty unique. So yeah, people are always going to make that comparison. Are, are you as good as your father? Well, um, I had a longer career than my dad, but he had more team success. So uh, and, and he was a great player. He was recognised in Geelong at St. Joseph's College where he went as the greatest schoolboy athlete they ever had and they've still got an award named after him that uh, is given to the best athlete of the school every year. So, you know, he was, unlike me, he was a really good athlete, really good footballer, captain of the cricket, captain of the boxing, captain of everything. So... It was pretty unique, but of course, in those days, you just didn't get the publicity. If you're if you're going through now, you'd be on everything, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Is
0: there one piece of advice Mick that he gave you um, that
1: sticks in your mind to this day? Uh, look, I was a bit of a wild boy, Pete. Um, you probably realise that, but uh, in, yeah, there's there no no iPhones and all those sort of things back in the seventies and eighties, and you know we we used to get up to a bit of a bit of mischief. No one did anything, um, yeah. You know, no one did anything criminal, and no one did any uh, you know, any damage. But, you know, in those days in the 70s and 80s, AFL clubs used to drink a lot of grog, you know, and you know that. Mm. Uh, you go away on interstate trips and, you know, there were, it, was, it was a good thing in one way. It's was a lot of com- camaraderie. Clubs, you know, players worked, they played footy. You only had Saturday night to enjoy yourself though, so that you'd all go out, you'd get on the grog, all those sorts of things. So, you know, I was, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm a choir boy or anything like that. I was, you know, I had my moments. I was a pretty wild boy and I played it fairly hard. So describe, but i probably had at various times what I call a rock star mentality. You see it in kids. So you've got that rock star mentality and you, you, you sort of act that way a little bit. So in terms of my dad, he never sort of gave me any, a little bit of football advice occasionally, but more so he kept me on the track a fair bit. So if I was getting out of line a little bit, he'd always ring me up or actually drive down to Geelong and see me and just pull me back a bit. So um, you know, as you get older in life, I, I appreciate that. And I think my two sons do now, the fact that, you know, You just need someone to pull your coat a little bit to make sure that you don't go off the rails too much. But he he would always ring me up on a Friday night before a game and if I was going well, he wouldn't say too much. But, you know, all players go through periods where they lose their confidence. And the biggest one he used to say to me all the time is when you're playing your best football, you actually go and get the ball. You go and attack the ball and get it on the ground or fly for your marks and get it. And you just need to go back to that basic and um, don't wait for the ball to be given to you, but go and get it first. And the ones that are given to you are a bonus. So... Um, I can remember holding the phone out from my ear a few times when he was saying those <laughs> things, as most young blokes do. But, you know, that, yeah, that not overly uh, intru- He certainly wasn't an, an intrusive father. Um, I just gave a whole lot of football mem- memorabilia to the Geelong Football Club through the vice president, Bobby Gartland. And um, because I had, I've just moved houses recently, and I, I, had, a lo- I had a lot of his memorabilia, and I was a pretty good collector of memorabilia myself. And Bob's setting up this magnificent. Um, museum for the Geelong Football Club and, and doing a great job and I gave him a lot of stuff just recently that actually some of it actually brought a tear to his eye because he, he loves Geelong so much but I found and I'd forgotten about him all these letters um that my father had written me to me after games so he must have sat down on a Sunday and, and wrote a letter and posted it. and I would get it on a, on a Tuesday or something like that because you know it was the old phone you dial up and answer the phone and um you know, no one had a fax machine or an email or anything like that. People actually used to write letters. Snail uh, eh? exist. Yeah, so they'd write, Dad write, would write one on a Sunday and I'd probably get it on the Tuesday. And um, yeah, and, and I gave these letters to Bobby Gartman after reading a few of them. But it, it, it's just interesting. It just brings back a lot of memories. And um, look, if parents are prepared to do that, it means that they care. Um, you know, and parents have got to fight the fight. I say it to people all the time all kids give you grief. You've just got to, you know, you've got to be aware of what's going on. And, um, and try and have some influence uh, to point him in the right direction. Everyone will go off the rails, you've just got to get him back on again. Oh you've got trouble looking at you.
0: Can I just go on a little bit from the culture that you were talking about and the fact that there was a bit of after-hours entertaining that was done and uh, imbibing just a little bit? You mentioned Polly was your first coach. What did the coaches in that era do? Were they they along for the ride? Did they try and stop all this partying, or did they realise that it was
1: going to happen anyway and just accept it? When I first came to Geelong, it did have a massive culture of drinking. But I think most, you know, football clubs did. But it, it was there was a Orange. Well, not that I went to any other club because I used to go and visit, um, uh, certainly Collingwood a bit because of Ricky Barham, and you had Stan Magro and Wertho and Brian Taylor at later on and different people. And Brian was at Richmond too. And uh, AFL clubs did have that culture of mateship, you know, and, and, and drinking. In my 15 years there. Most of those years, um, either committee or administrative-wise, was was a pretty dysfunctional club. Mm. Um, And then when Malcolm Blight came along, Ken Gannon and particularly Brian Cook Um, Frank Costa, you know, that era, it's become a super club, a a very professional club. Well, talk more about that on the
0: other side of the break because there were a couple of times, I think, where you were looking for various positions at Geelong and maybe the relationship between you and the footy club was perhaps a little tempestuous. We'll discover whether that's the case or not. And judging by the look on Mick's face, I think it might be. On the other side of the break, Michael Turner is with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And what a pleasure it is to have Michael Turner as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I spoke, Mick, about the fact that maybe at times, obviously you love the club, but at times was your relationship with the club just a little tempestuous?
1: Um, Yeah, look, I'd have to say, uh, well... We never had a blue or anything like that. But I think what happens, Peter, is like most players, you you, fi- you finish your AFL career and um, you've, your dad's played for the club, you've played for the club, you're barracked for the club as a kid. And probably your dream is to, and your ambition, um, certainly both, is to you know, work for the club in some capacity. So, um, look, when I look back, um, and I'm honest with myself, it was, um, look, I, I was disappointed with a few decisions they made, but at the same time, I, I probably, probably caused some of that myself. Um, yeah, you know, when I retired, uh, the year before I retired, I had a couple of people come, and I won't mention names, come to me from the committee and basically said, look, you know, we're, we've got you in line to be the next coach of the Geelong Footy Club and that sort of stuff. And I said, oh, yeah, that's good. So um, being the honest person I was when uh, some people from the committee again came to me at the end of that 88 season and said, look, what do you think we should do in terms of the coaching with John Devine and that? And I said, well, look, you, know, you, you work it out for yourself. But we've got a very good team. We've got the superstar player in Gary Ablett. Um, we haven 't made the finals you know he 's been coaching for those three or four years and um my my personal thing is you uh, we need to move on and change coaches, thinking that I might have the job. Um, what I should have done is just left it for a while and not said anything and maybe gone into the media for a couple of years and um, let it play its course out. But, you know, uh, and nothing against anything that happened because what happened was um, Malcolm Blight got the job and he was completely qualified for the job. He coached North Melbourne as a captain coach, not successfully, but he went, to, you know, went over to South Australia and coached Woodville West Times, wasn't it, to a, yeah. to a couple of premierships and great player, and um, and they went for Malcolm Blight. It was quite interesting that year, even though he was going to get it, I got interviewed for the job and Sam Newman got interviewed for the job. That was would have been an interesting one, wouldn't it? Oh, hey? Could you imagine Sam coaching? Yes, but pe- <laughs> people don't know too much about it, but I know he was interviewed for the job and uh, and I was too. And um, Look, just being probably headstrong, um, it was mentioned to me uh, by Ken Gannon at the time, the CEO, that uh, would I consider being an assistant to Malcolm Blight, and of course I should have been, but you know, being headstrong, I, I went off and coached in the, in the VFA. I coached Werribee for a year because I was teaching up there and uh, and didn't take that opportunity. So, you know, I, I, and then, so that was disappointing. I also went on, I worked for K Rock in, in Geelong in the media and I worked for the Geelong Addie. And, you know, it's like working in the media. You've got to be a bit controversial. You've got to be honest and you've got to have something to say. And I think so, during that era, some of the things I said about Geelong, they didn't like, and that's fair enough. Uh, when Malcolm Blight um, finished his tenure at Geelong, and he was very unlucky not to win um, win a premiership. It was uh, a bit opposite to area. We needed a good forward to win uh, a premiership and Geelong needed just that extra backman to win a premiership in those days because they had Brownless and Stoneham and Ablett and a great midfield. And But Timmy Darcy and those sort of players who were playing full back probably should have been playing on the back flank. So he was probably short, a really good backman in, in winning a premiership. But, um, you know, Gary Ayres, quite rightly, uh, was appointed assistant coach at Geelong and coached their, uh, their VFL side. And when the job came up the second time, I did go really hard and was interviewed for the job the second time, along with Terry Wallace, along with Mark Yates and myself, and I was pretty well prepared. Um, And, you know, Gary Ears was always going to get the job because he was already in that position. He was the heir apparent. So so I missed that time. Um, There was a new position organised around that with um, the football operations manager's job. That was a new one in the AFL. It only started about that time, and I was interviewed for that and actually sat down at Rex Guerrero's boardroom uh, in Geelong and had a really good meeting with Gary for about an hour, but he knew I went for the coaching job um, and I didn't get it. Uh, and he went with a bloke called Paul Armstrong, who's had a lot of jobs at yeah. Western Bulldogs Richmond and Geelong. And um, he got the football operations manager's job at Geelong, which, which is, that's fine. Um, so I, at that time, was trying to get a job in football. I'd been teaching for 15 years and because Paul was running working for AFL Victoria and running the Geelong Falcons. He moved to Geelong, and I was lucky enough to get into his position. So, um, And that was nearly 25 years ago, Pete. So very lucky that opportunity arose. Um, do you think back at all, Mick, and think, I wonder what would have happened had I got it? Well, I look at what happens to coaches now, and um, you, know, you look at someone like a Nathan Buckley and an Adam Simpson and how well they really present themselves. They do present themselves really well. But I think it just depends on your personality. Um, yeah, you know, it it does. People take a very very heavy toll coaching. You know, I, mean, I know what to go through and mention names, but you know, not a lot of people come out the other end mm. um, balanced. I, I, that's the word I'd use. It's it's a very very hard occupation, and um, yeah, it, it's hard to say. I think um, the coaching. Look, I personally think I would have been a very very good coach, but I think it would have taken a toll on me. There's no doubt about it. The football operation's a bit different, you know, because. That's basically what I do now. And, um, you know, for 24 years working for the AFL and um, and running the programs I, I I have, you know, we've obviously been very successful with the players we've produced and what we've been able to do. So um, so that side is good. But look, you take the opportunity to come and um, what what happened was that Ken Gannon gave me the job as uh, talent manager at Geelong Falcons and it, it's an evolve from there and, uh, you know, I've, I've for a long time done that. Next year is going to be my 25th year, so it's given me longevity in the game, I suppose, Pete. So I'm not, um, I'm certainly not complaining about it. But I was disappointed, um, uh, particularly at the last time with Geelong when they were doing the Mark Thompson, um, you know, review those years back um, before they um, you went know, went on their premiership. 2006 spools. was when it happened. So, happen. so I, look, I, I'll be honest with you. I went and spoke. There was a lot of rumours about me maybe having a chance to get that job, and um, I went and saw one of the um people on the board and uh, not long after that another board member rang me and indicated that uh, I was I was going to get the job and um politically it didn't happen for whatever reason it uh, it didn't so yeah I was obviously really disappointed about that because they hit a great era after that and and Neil Baum got the job and that's fine Neil Baum's a very experienced football person everywhere Neil Baum goes they win premierships so mm. so good appointment but yeah, you know, on 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 my own um on my own head at that time because I was virtually led to the – I was even asked to do organisational charts and everything at the time by this person who I won't mention. So I was pretty disappointed. So my attitude then was, look, I've got to move on with my life. I can't be, you know, spend the rest of my life hoping I'm going to get a job at Geelong Football Club because I've, I've been to two coaching interviews and the football operations manager's job, you know, a couple of times. Um, so you've got to move on. So I just said, look, you know, it is what it is. Geelong do what they do. I've got to move on, just concentrate on my own life and um, my family and my, my own career. So I so, sort of put it to the side a bit. But it's it's water under the bridge for me. It, it is what it is.
0: Oh, they still remember the flying number nine with that flowing mane and <laughs> and the great speed dashing down the wing at Cadenia Park, I'm sure.
1: Well, my granddaughter over the weekend, I've just had the grandkids for about three or four days and she keeps telling me Frankie's her name, um, little granddaughter, and I've got a grandson, Ziggy, and uh, she keeps telling me, you're bald, Poppy. And I say, I'm not bald. I've got heaps of hair, you know. Just flick it keep flicking it out of my eyes. But, um, yeah, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we had plenty of hair. Pete?
0: Yeah, mullets were the go in those mm. days, weren't yeah, they? Everybody had one. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're nearly out of time, but uh, we'll take our final break and then I'll be back to ask Mick about one of the most storied incidents in football that happened in his time when he was at Geelong. And it had something to do with a bus. That's on the other side of the rake with Michael Turner on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives just about out of time which is a great shame because we could have explored a few more stories with the great michael turner mick um, you talked about preliminary finals geelong was a probably a nearly club when you got there compared to the era that they had from 2007 onwards what was the biggest win that you were associated with when you close your eyes what was the win that comes back to your memory
1: yeah look in that era we didn't have a lot of success geelong i'm um, yeah, and that's why state of origin football was so important to me and blokes like Robbie Flower and Jared Healy. Yeah. Um, pri- prior, prior state of origin, I remember one team we went away in in 1979 and played set the South Australian League and, and was before state of origin. We had uh, Mike Fitzpatrick and Malcolm Blight and Graham Melrose and the centre line was Flower or Raines Turner. I had Bruce standing next to me, you know, helping me in the game. So... That was a, they were they were a big thrill, and you're trying to explain that to people now, and they obviously don't quite see how state origin was that big. But state origin football was good, but Geelong didn't play in a lot of finals. But we did have a really good year in 1980 when Billy Goggin coached us the first year, and we had a fantastic team, but we didn't have a great forward line. Um, and I'm not knocking anyone, but if we had had one Gary Ablett or one Barry Stone or one Billy Brown, so I think we might have won a premiership. So in 1980, yeah, we did really well under Billy's first year, and we were. Um, trying to be uh, we're pretty close to topple that and we played a game against Richmond about a month before the finals and of course they went on and won the premiership in 1980 and it was in front of 90,000 at the MCG um, we, we had a good game Geelong and we got up and won and, and that's probably a great memory for me because it's hard to explain to people in football when you're happiest in football when your team wins and you play really well um, and, and that's just human nature. So Geelong won. We beat Richmond in front of ninety thousand, which was a big thrill. And I was got the votes that that day. So that was that was a, a great game for us. So we went top of the ladder after that, and then we went towards the finals. And um, we played Richmond. If we had been on the MCG, I think it might have been different. We played Richmond at the uh, at Waverley. And uh, and they got us there, and they put. I'd been playing a lot of games on Brian Wood, and they took Wood and put him somewhere else. And I had Wusher Welsh playing on me, mm. Peter Welsh, um, and, he, and he limited me a fair bit. And then uh, the following following week, we had the preliminary final against Collingwood, and uh, again it was, it was a great game. I, I looked at the last quarter on um, on the stream the other day, and uh, and we were only uh, we were a few few goals down. Had another really good game, and uh, we got beaten by about I think it was was less. Probably less than a goal. about four yeah, points. Yeah. So that was that was, that was was disappointing. We were very close. And then Collingwood went on and uh, played Richard in the grand final and got smashed. That's when Kevin Bartlett kicked eight. Got absolutely smashed. So, um, yeah, you're sort of sitting there in, in the grandstand thinking, well, okay, we got beat. You know, we, there's plenty of time to play in another one. Well, there wasn't. So Geelong – look, Geelong did the right thing. There's no doubt about that. We needed a centre-half forward and we probably needed another on ball and they got Brian Peake over from Western Australia. And Brian was an absolutely outstanding player for East Fremantle and, and a great, you know, state player. He he was he was an absolute superstar. So they got him to come over and play. Um, Turned yeah. up in a helicopter. Yeah, one, first baby. night of training, he, he, they flew him down from Tullamarine in, in a helicopter, and there was ten thousand people at the ground, and he came out and jogged a couple of laps. And it was, you know, it was they talk about things big time now? That was that was big time mm. to get a helicopter down, and of course they also went and got Gary Sidebottom because we needed a forward and. Um, the season panned out again. Geelong had a good season. I myself had a few injuries. I had to sit out the preliminary final. And uh, we played Collingwood again at Waverley. And Peaky was in the middle. He did okay. And, of course, it's a famous story of the bus. Um, now,
0: what happened with that? I want to get the definitive version of this because we've heard 50 different versions
1: over the years. What happened, Mick? This is the truest version I can tell you. So Billy Goggin used to play games with players a lot. He used to do it with me. He'd to drop you to get you going again. Um, he did it with Sam Newman. He did it with me. He did a lot of players. And as I said, some personalities will really fire up. Um, and any time he did it to me or, or, or threatened to drop me, I, you know, I used to really fire up and say, well, you know, if I can't play footy, I'll go and do something else. And um, uh, so that so that sort of worked with me. Now, the Gary Sidebottom one, um, he had a farm out in Lara and we used to leave by bus from uh, Caninia Park and all the players would file down. And there's two parts of the story, Pete. So... Anyhow, whether it was Billy Goggins' job or Jeff Ainsworth's job as chairman of selectors or whoever's job it was, someone was supposed to ring on the landline, no mobiles, Gary Sidebottom to say um, the bus will be out for Lara to pick you up, you know, because you expected to go to the game. So he was dropped, Gary Sidebottom. There's no doubt in my mind that he was going to play in that preliminary final game. Mm. Um, but they dropped him to fire him up a bit. They're going to pick him up at Lara near his farm and drive up to Melbourne and uh, he'd go. So the bus has pulled up. My own opinion is whether Jeff Ainsworth or anyone didn't or did ring him up, they didn't ring him up, he should have been on the bus. He's a professional footballer getting played well at that time, well above rates than any of, any of the rest of us were getting. And, um, you know, as a footballer, even though he was, dro- was dropped, he should have been on the bus and gone to Waverley. And I'm sure once he got there, he would have been told he was in the side now. The other end of that was Peter Johnson, um, who was named emergency, and they're expecting a side bottom to show up. Uh, he rolls down to the club with Murray and Whitcomb and a couple of blokes, and they say, well, you're not playing Johnny. Egan just drive up to the game. And, I mean, he's not playing. He's driving up to the game. So he never even showed up at the game. So uh, they've stopped at Werribee, had a couple of punts at the TAB there. I think John O ate half a chicken and drank a chocolate milkshake. <laughs> this, is, this is true. It's got up to the, the ground. They're pulled into the car park, and the and team manager's out the, out the front, Les Bailey, looking for him. He said, well, you know, Gary Sidebottom hasn't shown up. You're playing Senar forward. Like, John O hasn't even got any gear. And he's just had half you know, a chocolate milkshake and, um, you know, uh, you know half a bucket of chips and a bloody chicken. So, <laughs> so it wasn't good preparation for John. I think that that day he's had something like one kick, one amble. So yeah. not just, you know, as, again, a word I'd use was dysfunctional. You know, Peter, poor old Peter Johnson didn't have to do that stuff. So that that was a complete complete stuff up, Pete. We're just
0: about out of time, Mick, and that is a real shame. But my last question is: you've already spoken about the fact that you. You're not in love with footy. You haven't been in love with footy over the journey, but you've been there for a long time. Have you got an exit date in mind, or is it just going to keep on going for you?
1: Uh, look, I, I, I really enjoy working for the AFL, and I love working with the kids. It's uh, it, it's a great job. So you know, I'm I'm, I'm not I'm saying I'm not a, a footy head, but I yeah. still I still love football. Um, so uh, yeah, look, I've been doing um, this with the AFL running the, uh, the Geelong Falcons Academy for 24 years, which has been great because there's been been a lot of change, and a lot of growth and a lot of challenges. So next year's my 25th. Um, maybe next year, uh, it's my 25th year, would be a good year to finish. 15 years as a teacher, 15 years as a player and 25 years doing that. But in saying that, Pete, I don't want to retire completely. I think, I, you know, even though I like surfing and doing things with the grandkids and travelling and all that sort of stuff, I, I'd get pretty bored quick. So I'd still like to be involved in football. Maybe the transition for me is not working full time um and running the Geelong Falcons academy and maybe moving into doing some AFL recruiting or something like that so you know what what I do is develop talent so you know and you're looking at that same talent so I I think I've got a pretty good eye for you know for looking at talent when I mean, you look through the from the players that uh, we've developed over the years so uh, yeah so I I'd, I'd say my transition would be to hopefully work for an AFL club at some stage um you know in a, in the recruiting department not not full time maybe um you know, the, the season for clubs now and they've got a soft cap you've got to fit into, of course, but it may be from March through to um, October, November at the end of the draft, you know, and have two or three months off over the summer. So that's that's maybe something I'm pretty interested in, I think.
0: It's been a brilliant journey in football, Mick. Um, so many things you've achieved and uh, you touched on one of them, the fact that uh, M Turner's on one wing and L Turner's on the other wing and the Geelong team of the century, which is one of your proudest boasts. Anyone who saw you play won't forget that brilliance that you had, for nearly 250 games. It's been a delight to relive some of your career and some of the stories that have gone on behind your career. We wish you well at Lawn and just keep away from those big fish when you go out there. I'll try to, Pete. Thanks very much. Good on you, mate. Michael Turner joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you enjoyed that and hope you can join us next week when we catch up with another great Australian sportsperson right here at the same time. Hope you can join us then.